good to see you here anyway. And today we're carrying on. We've been doing um, a series over the last few weeks uh, and months in the book of Mark. We've called it The King and His Cross because we're looking at Jesus. We're focusing in on his life. What did he do? Uh, What made him so special? We're scrutinizing his claims about being the Messiah, about being the Son of God. We're looking at how did he prove that that was the case. We're looking at um, the way he spoke, the wisdom that he imparted to people. We're looking at how he gathered leaders and launched them and released them into the world. And so we're just going through verse by verse, passage by passage, week by week, trying to get the most that we can out of this moment. Um, our daughter Evelyn uh, likes to suck the water out of the sponge in the bath and she likes, she doesn't like to suck a little bit, she likes to suck every last drop out of the sponge. And so let's treat this morning like that as we open God's word together. Let's not just um, open it for the sake of a little uh, finger buffet picking of it, but let's suck out every last drop of goodness that's in these words today. So we're going to be reading Mark chapter 9. And it's verse 14 to 29. The context for this passage, um, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about how Jesus uh, and James and Peter and John had been on top of the mountain. Uh, Jesus has had the transfiguration moment. Uh, They'd met with Moses and Elijah. They'd had this incredible moment where the father spoke the words, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And now Jesus and the other three disciples are coming back down the mountain. And this is the scene that they are met with as they come back down the mountain. Mark nine fourteen to 29. If you need a Bible this morning, there's Bibles on the end of the rows here. If you need one, just pop your hand up and one will magically make its way along to you. Most people, I think, have them on their phone now uh, as it gives you a chance to check Facebook at the same time and not be caught for it. So I know I'm on to you all. I know what's happening here. Uh, Mark 9, verse 14 to 29. When they came to the other's disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teacher of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has it been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up after Jesus had gone indoors the disciples asked him privately why couldn't we drive him out he replied this kind come out can come out only by prayer and I guess I want us to talk about today uh, the question of faith what does it look like for us to live with a level of faith where we see things happen in our lives? What does it look like for us to live with a level of faith 
that we uh, put ourselves into risky situations uh, for, our, for our pride uh, and also for our safety because we trust that Jesus is going to be right there in the middle of it, meeting us like he met this father who was so desperate for a moment. It's a question of faith. Ultimately, we want to be the kind of people who wake up in the morning with enough faith in the tank that we're ready to go wherever Jesus asks us to go, say whatever Jesus asks us to say, and do whatever Jesus asks us to do each and every day. And so today we're looking at how, how can our imperfect faith be made full in a perfect saviour? Our imperfect faith in a perfect saviour. And so we're going to look at some of the key characters uh, in, in today's passage because they give us a clue as to what faith looks like. And the first people I want to look at is the general crowd, the crowd who'd gathered around the disciples uh, and the teachers of the law as this fracas had broken out between them. I've never used the word fracas in my life. I've not even written it on the page. I don't know where that came from. A fracas had broken out and he slapped him with his gauntlet and said to you. Um, sorry, just lost me for a second there. <laughs> anyway... The crowd have gathered round. There's something going on. The boy has come uh, with his son uh, and nothing's happening. So this crowd are gathering around like, what's happening? What's going to be going on? Often in the Bible, we see Jesus go somewhere and a crowd appears. So many of the stories of Jesus doing something start with, and suddenly a crowd appeared or a crowd began to follow him or a crowd gathered or a crowd assembled. Wherever Jesus went, it drew something because people had heard about him. They'd heard whispers about what he could do. They'd heard whispers about who he was claiming to be, or they'd maybe encountered somebody who'd had a moment of healing with him or who'd experienced the wisdom of his teaching, who'd said, you need, you need to come and see this guy. He's unreal you need to come and see what he does and so everywhere Jesus goes these crowds start appearing but this time Jesus isn't there they've spotted his disciples trying to do something and this crowd gathers around and the crowd are excited what Jesus about what Jesus could potentially do that's why they're there they're like oh this Jesus guy's here something's going to happen in this case they're like his disciples are here we've seen them do stuff too let's gather around and find out what's going on Ultimately, though, at the end of this passage, we don't hear about the crowd uh, following Jesus and going with him onwards. Jesus goes to a quiet place and the crowd head back to their lives again. They go back to what they were doing before. You see, the crowd were uh, interested, but they weren't invested. How many of us here watch the program Dragon's Den? Is anyone a Dragon's Den fan? A few Dragon's Den fans in. Basically, the premise of it is it's really cruel, actually. They get people who've uh, got real dreams uh, and, and they've been developing businesses and they've poured uh, all their money and all their heart and all their soul into a business and they line them up in front of five business experts who basically tell them why it's a terrible idea and how they've wasted years of their lives doing it. Mostly, occasionally, somebody gets through. Um, but there was a guy back in 2006 called Rob Law and he came into the Dragon's Den uh, and he was looking for them to invest £100,000 for 10% of his business. And he had this business where he was going to create little suitcases for children. One of them is going to appear on the screen here. You've probably seen kids marching around or riding these around an airport. They're called trunkies. Um, and he brought that original idea to the Dragon's Den and he said, uh, if you give me £100,000, I'll give you 10% of my business. And initially the Dragons were interested. They were like, oh, this is an interesting concept. But then one of them got up 
Uh, and as he went to pull the, the trunky for the first time, the handle fell off it as he was walking back with it. And they were all like, nope, I'm out. This is a terrible product. I can't believe you've brought this here. This will never work. One of them said, uh, I'll give you the £100,000, but I want 50% of your business for it. And he said, no, I can't give you 50% of my business. So he left without investment. They were originally interested, uh, but they didn't invest. Fast forward six years, uh, and without the help of the dragons, uh, this guy built his business into a global empire. He sold millions of these little trunkies worldwide. Uh, and if, in 2013, his company was valued at 13 million pounds. Um, so if they'd invested at that time, the dragons would have uh, turned their investment from 100,000 pounds into 1.3 million pounds. They probably don't care about that. That's probably like piggy bank cash for them. But at the same time, they missed out. They were interested, but they weren't invested and this guy went on to do something incredible. And I think we see the crowd in this passage. It's a similar story for them. They're looking on. They're like, oh, something interesting's happened here. Here comes Jesus and the disciples. I wonder what they're going to do next. The disciples themselves are probably getting a wee bit of a rep as miracle workers. They've been out a few times on their own now. They've prayed for people. They've seen people healed. They've seen uh, demons leave people's bodies. And so this crowd have gathered around and this father's brought his ill son right into the midst of it all. And the crowd are just waiting on tenterhooks to see what will happen. And nothing happens when the disciples prayed for him, but eventually Jesus comes down and lays hands on this boy and, and the demon leaves him and they see something spectacular. But it doesn't say at the end of this passage and the people were so amazed by Jesus that they immediately gave their lives to him and followed him for the rest of their lives. It doesn't say uh, so uh, captivated by the, by the Savior, were they, that they decided to just lay down their tools and follow him all the way to Jerusalem. It just ends with Jesus and his disciples going to a quiet place and other people going back. Now, we don't know what happened in the hearts of those people those days, but the passage gives no indication that the crowd were completely one to Jesus. You see, for the crowd, it's easier to keep Jesus at arm's length because when things get tough or when he says something that they maybe don't quite agree with or when he asks the hard ask for them or brings a challenge that's going to be a difficult one for them to complete, without investment, you can turn your back at any moment. You can say, actually, that's totally fine. I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go and do my own thing just now. No problem at all. When things get choppy, it's really easy to walk away if you've not invested your heart. There can't be faith if our intention is always to just keep Jesus at arm's length. We can't have faith if we're not willing to pour in ourselves to him, to hand our lives over to him. If our ultimate finishing place is we're just going to do whatever we fancy doing and occasionally we'll pop up and show a mild interest in Jesus, there's no room for faith in that kind of following. And maybe that rings true for some of us this morning. Maybe we're aware that we come along to church every now and again or every so often we fling up a wee prayer when something's getting hard or something like that. And occasionally we have an interest in Jesus, but we're aware that we're not fully invested in Jesus. I think this morning God would say, come out of the crowd. Come out of the crowd and follow me. Give me your heart and I'll show you mine. Give me your uh, hopes, your dreams, and watch what I do with them. Invested, not just interested.
because mild interest doesn't build a full faith following. It has to be a full investment, a proper risk-taking moment where we leave it all on the line for Jesus. We say, I'm in, you've got my all. You can have it all. So the crowd were interested, but not invested. And Jesus is looking for full investment. The next people that we encounter are the teachers of the law. Um, we come down the hill with Jesus and the disciples and we find the other disciples uh, having an argument with the teachers of the law. Uh, and they turned up because the disciples had tried to heal this boy and nothing had happened. Uh, and it was like a perfect opportunity for them to jump in and explain why Jesus was wrong and why they were wrong for trying to do what they were trying to do, how they were, they were not doing the right thing, how they were acting outside of the law. And actually the teachers of the law would have been held in really high regard. They would have been uh, on a similar level to the Pharisees. They would have been seen as like uh, local law experts uh, and local spiritual law experts. People would have come to them to solve their disputes and to receive wisdom and all that stuff. And so these guys had turned up and they were like ready for the argument. They were ready for the debate with the disciples. They're like, you guys are wrong. You've got it all wrong. See, unlike the, the crowd, the teachers of the law have made an investment They've invested all of their time and all of their energy and all of their lives into the learning of the law uh, and the portrayal of perfection. They want everyone to know that they've got it together and that they're what people should aspire to, the following perfectly of the law. They've made an investment, but they've just made it in the wrong place. Um, when I was younger, I used to collect these little football figures. I don't know if anyone remembers. They were called Corinthian Pro Stars. Uh, they about this height, uh, and they had tiny little bodies and massive heads, uh, and I don't really know why I started collecting them. I think you got them free with Tetley tea bags during the 1998 World Cup, and that started years of interest for me in Corinthians Pro Stars. I'm really going down your cool ratings today. I'm so sorry about that, but <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and bring it back. So I collected these Corinthians Pro Stars, uh, and I started out, I maybe had like 20 or 30 of them, and then uh, I went to secondary school, and my mate James, I met my mate James in first year at secondary school, and he was like, these are cool. I want to collect these too. We can collect these together. We'll build a collection. So we came up with this world domination plan of collecting all these rare Corinthian pro stars. And then we were like, and when we're older and we're married uh, and we've got kids and we're ready to retire like at 25 or something like that, we'll sell these Corinthians pro stars and they will be worth a fortune. They'll be worth so much money. So between our two Saturday jobs, we maybe spent about 300 pounds on Corinthian pro stars over the next couple of years. Now, well, I, I don't even know what it looks like today, but when I was like 21, I mildly looked at it and there was like no market for Corinthian Pro Stars. Basically, nobody in the world wants Corinthian Pro Stars. You can't even give them away on eBay and Gumtree. People are like, these are a waste of space. Why would anyone pay any money for these? It was a terrible, terrible, like if my aim was to make money, it was probably one of the worst investments you could ever make. I looked up the other day, if I'd invested that £300 in Bitcoin when Bitcoin first came around, today I would have a fortune of £170 million if I'd invested £300 in Bitcoin right at the start. I missed an opportunity there, really, really missed the boat on that one, hoping Corinthian Pro Stars come back around one day as some sort of cryptocurrency, but we'll see how it goes. I invested, but I invested in the wrong place. If my aim was making money, I invested my money in the wrong place. And I think for the teachers of the law, we see that they've just invested in the wrong place. They've invested, they've given their lives into what looks like a really healthy and good thing. The law, they've, they've given their lives to it. But we find out from Jesus that they've tipped too far in the wrong direction, that it's become all about the law and not really about God. 
that it's become all about uh, looking good uh, and being an expert and being wise uh, and, and being the kind of people that people look to and they're like, oh, they've got it all together. And they've totally missed out the fact that the Savior is walking and talking amongst them. They're actually uh, going against him. They will be the ones that rally the troops to crucify the Savior. They've invested, but it's in the wrong place. Uh, Later in in the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus uh, gives a bit of a scathing review of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says this about them. Matthew 23, verse 7, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. They are tough words to hear. If you were a teacher of the law, that would have been really difficult to hear. But what Jesus is saying here is like, you're actively doing damage to the kingdom of God. You're giving off this illusion that you've got it all together, that you're perfect. And what you're doing in that moment is you're eliminating the need for a savior. If people uh, think you're perfect or aspire to be like you who are perfect, there is no need for a savior. There's no need for grace. There's no need for forgiveness. But the reality was, Jesus was saying the teachers of the law weren't the perfection of creation that they thought they were. They were hypocritical. They were hiding behind the guise of perfection. And what that was doing was causing people to strive for perfection and they were falling short. And that was pushing them further and further away from the kingdom of God because they felt like they were never going to be worthwhile. They were never going to be good enough to enter the kingdom because they thought only these super holy people can get there. For these guys, they loved the law and self-righteousness much more than they loved God himself. And there was no room for a saviour in that theology. And Jesus died to bring grace because the recognition is that none of us are perfect. None of us. I'm so sorry to burst your bubble here this morning, but if you think you're perfect, you're wrong. I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) If you've been living all these years of your life under the guise of perfection, none of us are perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God. We will never be righteous enough in our own strength to make Uh, to make it to the levels of righteousness that God requires of us. That is the beauty of what Jesus did. He came and he gave his life freely on the cross because our little faith uh, perfection tanks were at this level and Jesus dying brought up the difference to fill it up so that we were perfect in God's eyes. It is the most remarkable thing that has ever been done in history. Jesus makes the difference. And so a great question for us to ask ourselves regularly, am I recognizing my need for a savior? Am I recognizing that I need grace? Am I recognizing that I need forgiveness? For some of us, we'll be like, oh my goodness, I recognize on a minute by minute basis that I need grace. For others of us, we might be sitting here thinking, I'm not sure that I need grace. I think I'm okay. I've got it all together. We all need grace. We all need Jesus. The teachers of the law had invested, but in the wrong place. They thought they were perfect. And so they left no room for the Savior walking amongst them. Uh, The next people that we encounter in the passage is the disciples. Uh, 
I was, the, the disciples have been getting a bit of a bad rep for the last few weeks. They seem to walk from one crucial learning point to another with Jesus just over and over and over again. And you can almost picture Jesus. He's just had the transfiguration moment. He's coming down from the mountain. He's really buzzing about it. God's just spoke to him. They've seen Moses and Elijah. You can imagine him having some banter with Peter, James, and John. And then in the distance, he sees what appears to be a street brawl breaking out between the remaining disciples he's left down there. And you can almost imagine his head in hand moment. He's like, oh, I left them for one minute. What is going on? The crowd have gathered, the arguments happening. Jesus come down and almost immediately heals the boy. And the disciples are like, why did that not happen for us? Like, we did all that stuff that you told us to do, and we were casting out, and we were, you know, we were laying hands and all that stuff. Why didn't it happen? And Jesus says these words, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. It seems like the disciples just can't catch a break at the minute. Poor Peter's going from crucial conversation to crucial conversation, and the disciples keep just seem to be getting it wrong. But I think there's something refreshing and real about that and hopeful for us as Jesus followers and that the guys who were walking and talking with Jesus literally right in front of him every single day, watching him raise people from the dead and heal people and speak wisdom, still were getting it vastly wrong the moment that Jesus was away from the picture. (laughs) There's something quite reassuring about that. They needed a savior just as much as each of us do. If you spent any time with our little family, uh, you'll know that we're raising, we're not really raising, she's doing it herself, uh, a very independent little girl. Uh, she is fiercely independent. Uh, and so a lot of our phraseology just now is uh, no daddy and I'll do it myself daddy and leave me to do it daddy and all of that kind of chat. Uh, and so the other morning I was like, should we get dressed? And she was like, yep, let's get dressed. So she picks her own clothes and she picked a pair of pink leggings that are particularly tight, like they're difficult to get on. And I was like, would you like some help with that? She's like, nope. I'll do it myself, Daddy. I then proceeded to watch her for five minutes, putting both her legs in the same leg of a pair of leggings without fail. And she was getting more and more angry, more and more frustrated. She was at the point where she was just crying at the end of it. She was like, why is this not working? And only at that moment did she remember that I was in the room with her and she was like, help, Daddy. And so, of course, I came over and in in a couple of seconds, I was able to sort her legs into two different legs of the leggings and she was dressed and it was all good. In this moment, the disciples are all for healing the boy for themselves. They're all for being the ones to, to, to go in and just blast the evil spirit out of this boy. They've done it. They've seen Jesus do it. They've been out themselves. They're doing it, but they've forgotten something so important. They're going through the motions, and they've forgotten it's Jesus that actually does it. It's not them. It's not their power. It's not how gifted eh, or special or how well-trained they are. Only Jesus has the power to heal. Only Jesus has the power to remove evil from someone's place, someone's body. And they've forgotten that. They're going through the motions. They're doing everything that Jesus did, but they've forgotten that it requires Jesus to make that happen. Jesus says it can only come out by prayer. And what is prayer other than a a recognition and an admission on our point that the thing we're crying out for, we are not capable of doing ourselves. When we pray for something to happen, we're asking God because we're like, I can't do this. I don't pray in the morning, Jesus, will you help me tie my shoelaces? I can do that. I'm capable of doing that. It happens. 
My prayer is, Jesus, will you transform this city? Jesus, will you heal cancer and the people who I know who are struggling with cancer? Jesus, would you uh, miraculously break drug addiction in our, in our community? Our prayers are a recognition to God that we see something broken and we are not able to fix it. We can be part of the solution, but only Jesus can fix the brokenness of our world. The disciples have acted like they forgot Jesus is at the center of it all. And he'd only been up the mountain for one day. (laughs) Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross, he pulls no punches about the disciples. He says this, how arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with evil and the suffering of the world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and how proud they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. And I think for some of us this morning, maybe for all of us this morning, we can empathize with the disciples. How often do you find yourself 10 steps down the path of trying to find a solution before you remember that your savior is the most powerful, conquering, wonderful, grace-filled savior? How often are you miles into trying to bury into a solution before you remember Jesus is in the room with me right now? This community that we are desperate to see transformed does not need a bunch of Christians who can say the right things and do the right things and pray really great prayers with really fancy long words that sound really impressive. They need uh, a wonderful, addiction-breaking, grace-bringing, hope-filling, joy-filled Savior to radically enter and transform this place only jesus can do that only jesus can bring heaven to earth jesus isn't looking for perfect christians he's looking for people who are fully invested in him hearts given to him with a little bit of faith that we do have to offer and watch what he does with it and i think that's encapsulated in the final character the father who brings his child uh, to see jesus The father who brings uh, his broken and hurting son uh, to meet with Jesus. Uh, And he's lost in this story almost, isn't he? There's uh, the disciples are like caught up in why can't we heal this boy? The teachers of the law are caught up in the uh, what's wrong here and how can we pick this apart and why is everything wrong about what you're doing and in the midst of all the chaos is this dad holding his son like please will somebody just help my son and Jesus just walks in and he cuts right through the chaos and he's like tell me about your son he has this interaction with the father he says how long has it been like this and the father tells him from childhood and and that he throws him into fires and it's horrible and he said and the father says those words but if you can do anything please help us and jesus says if you can question mark everything is possible for the one who believes and then the father says these amazing words he says i do believe help me overcome my unbelief i do believe but help me overcome my unbelief and when he does that jesus uh, commands the spirit to leave the boy's body and it goes and i'm so drawn 
to these words. We have a father who is confronted by fear. He's confronted by uh, the reality that his son is deeply, deeply unwell and probably regularly on death's door. And he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I do believe. But also there's this part of me that really doesn't believe. And I don't know how to match these two things up. I desperately want to believe that you can change this situation. But something within me says this is never going to happen at the same time. And Jesus says, hey, I'll meet you in your little bit of faith. And he heals his son. And it's the most beautiful, wonderful picture of a savior. Even though he's not 100% faith-filled, even though he's not certain that his son's about to get healed, even though he's uh, got doubts floating around in his head and he doesn't know if it's actually going to happen, Jesus says, the little faith you have, I'm going to take it, I'm going to fill up the tank to full, and your son is healed. Imperfect faith in a perfect savior is a picture painted of the reality of being a flawed human being following an infallible God. I think that picture brings hope for us as well in our unanswered prayers. Some of us will be sitting here today with big, uh, massive, hard, unanswered prayers. That is the reality of life. This father had seen the disciples unable to heal his son. No wonder he had doubt. No wonder he had worry floating around in there. It looks like a lost cause, but yet Jesus changes the impossible to possible. The story gives us hope that even when the odds are stacked against us and it looks like a losing situation, our imperfect faith can be made perfect in Jesus when he transforms a situation from never to now. We may not always see prayers answered exactly the way we want. We may not see them answered uh, at all. But the encouragement is to bring our little faith to Jesus, our doubting, uh, unbelieving faith to the perfect Savior and to give him the opportunity to do something wonderful with it. Uh, we had just recently, I'll just finish with this, in our staff team recently, uh, one of our uh, one of the ladies who works in our staff team, her um, son and daughter were expecting a baby and they found out quite early on that the 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 baby wasn't developing the way that they'd hoped and um, its brain hadn't unfolded uh, so like uh, apparently like your brain develops and then it outfolds into the two sides of your brain and that hadn't happened and so none of the other stuff that was supposed to happen after that could happen because the brain wasn't developing properly um, and so uh, very early on they were like this is not a viable pregnancy uh, like this child may not even make it to the full term and if it does, there will be severe, severe complications. They won't be alive for long. Um, and so they brought that to our staff team and we all started praying. Um, and if I'm being honest, I was praying. And I was like, Jesus, I believe you could do something. But at the same time, uh, I was like, how does that even work? <laughs> like, what could, what could you do there? Like, what, will you do something? Is that, will you even enter that situation? But we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And over the course of time, they had these scan results and each scan result showed like this little change where they were like, oh, the brain's unfolded now or, oh, something's happened. Anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, 40 weeks arrived, their baby was born uh, perfectly with no flaw, nothing wrong with it whatsoever. They thought there would be uh, major brain damage. There was nothing uh, notable for them. They have a perfectly happy, healthy uh, little boy. I, I think 
for most people who were praying for that situation, we believe that Jesus could do something. But I would, if, if they were anything like me, we weren't 100% convinced that Jesus would do something. But he met people in that situation. And that little boy was born. Where in our lives is Jesus asking us to take our imperfect faith and take a risk with it? So that he can come in his perfection and do something wonderful? Maybe it's our neighbours. Uh, maybe it's our work colleagues. Maybe it's our families. Maybe it's uh, the random person that you're going to meet at the bus stop tomorrow uh, or on your way to work. Imperfect faith in a perfect saviour. It's wonderful. Why don't we stand and pray together?